looking at uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. This is a, this is a pretty big week for our country. Uh, a huge decision. Decision. Be good if I can talk. That's always beneficial. A huge decision will be made. And we may not know the results of that decision for a while. But regardless of when those results come in, the decision gets made this week. Electing a president is always a bit of a contentious matter. There are people on both sides of the decision that will be unable to understand how a good and moral person could have voted for the other side. Every election we hear phrases like, this is the most important election of our time. And and mostly I think that that's because it's the most recent election. This time feels a bit different because the two sides seem to be farther and, and farther apart. The influence of social media, the response of the pandemic, the deceitfulness of the news, the time spent alone in our houses, unable to really engage in conversation with those of differing opinions but instead locked into our echo chambers for months at a time has done nothing but increase the tension, the division we feel in the world around us and the relationships that we have nurtured with friends on both sides of the political aisle. Whatever decisions happen this week will not put those tensions and that division to rest. In fact, it will quite possibly inflame them for a time, no matter which party claims the Oval Office for the next four years. Some of us have made our choice clear through the signs on our lawns, articles and comments made on social media, and through conversation with friends. Some of us refuse to have the conversation in order to avoid conflict. Some of us are as of yet unsure of who we should be supporting, and some of us will not be casting a ballot for one reason or another. No matter where you fall on the spectrum, one of the most invasive, one of the most personal questions that a person could ask in this or any election is who did you vote for? Who did you vote for? That's a loaded political question. It is, it is a question that may seem innocent at first blush, but man, there is so much potential for it to be divisive, for it to be a trap. How do we as Christians respond to the politics of our day? How do we respond to the divisive questions? How do we handle the sensitive, hard, intricate issues? As I have wrestled with these questions and with politics and how the church should be involved in them in the first place, I felt comforted by this text in Matthew. Would you read the word of the Lord with me this morning? Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in their words. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used used in paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. He asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word 
this morning that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, Jesus was not being asked who he would vote for between Biden and Trump, but he may as well have been. The Pharisees came to him with bad intentions. They they didn't like him, but they had no evidence against him. And so as our text lays out, out, they decided to try to set a trap for him, to set a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees sent their disciples, their followers to Jesus, along with some Herodians. Now, we don't have a ton of history on the Herodians. They aren't mentioned all that much, but by their name and the few other places they are mentioned, it is believed that they are members of a political party that follow Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch, the ruler appointed by Rome of that area that Jesus was from up in Galilee. And so these disciples and these members of a political party, they approach Jesus in an attempt to trap him by asking him what seems to be on the surface a fairly important question for a Jewish teacher to answer. Tell us, what is your opinion, they ask. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And though we may not understand why quite yet, this was an incredibly loaded question. They may as well ask Jesus who he was voting for in a public space with all eyes on him. We don't necessarily enjoy paying taxes ourselves, right? Like that's not something that like, oh man, I got that circle on the calendar for joyful reasons. I can't wait until April 15th comes along and I, and I get to participate in that. We're, we're not like real big on paying taxes, but taxation was a particularly troubling topic for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They had two sets of taxes that they were required to pay. The first was the religious tax. And this tax was levied by the temple. It kept the temple functioning. And since the temple was the center of their religious culture, those taxes could not be avoided. This was something that they just had to do, and they recognized that. But the second tax that they were required to pay was a Roman tax. This would be like us paying taxes to a foreign power. And while we here in the States had a tea party to show our displeasure with taxes we didn't feel that we should have to pay, the Jews had launched a few demonstrations, results, revolts, sorry, of their own that had ended very poorly and with lots of blood. The Herodians were present in hopes that Jesus would say no. That's what they wanted. They hoped that Jesus would say no, that they should not have to pay the imperial tax to Caesar, and thus they could begin to build a case against him. They could use his response to accuse him of inciting rebellion against Rome. This is what they wanted. The Pharisees' hope was that Jesus would say yes, for this would show his alliance with his support of Rome. And his listeners, his listening base would be fractured. All of those Jews, the zealots who supported their freedoms and were angry and disgusted by the Roman presence in their country would abandon Jesus for his support of Caesar. And so the trap is set. Who will Jesus support? Which side will he fall into? And how does Jesus respond? He asks for a coin. And they bring it to him. Whose image is this and whose inscription, he asks them. Caesar's, they respond. And into the tense silence, the words of Jesus come strong and clear. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. 
And in reaction to this response, our text tells us the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians were amazed. And in their amazement, they walked away, leaving him alone. Now, this phrase is one many of us have heard before. But why did it have such an effect on Jesus' opposition? Was it because he had so skillfully evaded their question? That may have been part of it. But there was a deeper reason. Let's look at the questions that Jesus asks once again. Whose image is this? Jesus says or asks. And whose inscription? Jesus indicates that when something bears the image and inscription of another, that they belong to that individual. The coin, the denarius, has Caesar's image and inscription on it. So give it to Caesar, to whom it belongs. But give to God what is God's. In the context of the questions and the response, it appears that Jesus is insinuating that there is something that bears his image and his inscription. The reason the men were amazed is because they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. They were disciples of the teachers of the law, and they knew the law inside and out. And they had come to Jesus asking him a legal question. And so Jesus needed to give them a legal response. He needed to respond with a verse from the writings of Moses. He needed to respond with a text from the law. And in referencing image and inscription, he did just that. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We, humans, mankind, bear the likeness of God in our entirety. He stamped His image upon us. It's how we were created. It's how we were formed in the image of God. And in Exodus chapter 13, 9, we read, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hands and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. God's people are bound to Him. The inscription, the Word of God, is bound to the very body of people, of God's people. And with this response, Jesus is saying, Caesar can have his little coin. He can have this little piece of metal. But God has claimed you as his own. He has claimed you as his image bearer. He has put his image and his word upon you. So give to God what is God's. As Christians, those words hit pretty hard. Just as I am not super happy to pay taxes, I also, in my sinfulness, am not consistently very happy to give God what is his either. And I'm not just talking about a tithe, though that is how this uh, verse is often, this text is often interpreted. Giving God what is God's is living for Him. It's living within His plan for my life. It's following His instructions and commands perfectly. It's giving Him glory. It's worshiping Him perfectly. It's rejecting sin and embracing goodness and mercy and justice and peace and love. It's giving to God, all of us, all that we were created to be as human beings. How are we doing with that? 
Though I know I am created in God's image, I I look in the mirror and what I see staring back at me is not the image of a perfect and holy God, but the cracked shell of wasted potential and squandered intent. Though God has created me in his own image, I have tarnished his perfection with my own agendas in sinfulness. Though he has inscribed his word upon my heart, I have ignored it and I have disobeyed it. Though I am to give all that I am to God, there are times that I wonder, with all the damage that I have done and all the abuse that I have put myself through, if he could even want me anymore. I wonder how he could want me anymore. Can any of you relate to that? Anyone who knows me knows that I have a penchant for hats. I've been that way since I was in elementary school. I've always loved, felt more comfortable in a baseball hat. Now, I've, I've had quite a few hats over the years, but there is one hat that still stands out for me. When I was in seventh grade, the Seattle Sonics were in the NBA championship against Michael Jordan and the hated Bulls. Now, I was living in Saskatchewan, Canada at the time, and, and so I was nowhere close to Washington. But mainly because of my dad, I'd always cheered for Seattle teams. And with the Sonics in the championship, man, I was over the moon. I was super excited. I remember going to the sports store, and sure enough, there was a Sonics hat. And this was a particularly loud hat. It had a a jagged design and the new Sonic symbol right front and center. I bought it with the money that I had diligently saved up for something totally different, and I wore that hat to school the next day. My head held high. This was my team, man, and I was a fan. Now, a purist would mock me for buying that particular hat. It's not the classic design. It's the remodel that everyone hated, but I didn't care. Man, I thought that sucker looked rad. Now, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, and the guys, they were unable to get it done versus Jordan, Pippen, and crew, but I still remember being allowed to stay up late and watch those games unfold all while wearing my hat and then one day the hat was gone I couldn't find it anywhere I searched my room high and low I cleaned out the van where things seemed to magically appear I meticulously went through my collection of hats I looked under the bed I did my laundry I don't know if I had that particular song playing while I was doing it, but I was, I was looking high and low all over the place for this stinking hat, and I, I could not find it. I was crushed. Even though it wasn't perfect in the eyes of the purists, even though it was a bit loud and maybe a bit gaudy, I loved that thing, and now it was gone. A few years later, I was helping go through the play clothes chest that was deep in the back of my sister's closet. And when you know it, there, at the bottom of the chest, full of dresses and fancy shirts, a few animal costumes and a tie-on tiger's tail, there was my hat. One of my sisters had decided that she wanted my hat and had stolen it from me. And then had been so scared of my wrath, she had hid it. And over time had forgotten about it. And having been incidentally jumped on at the bottom of the clothes chests and having sat forgotten, the hat was dusty and dirty, the brim was bent at wrong angles. 
The bridge of the hat was deformed. A few of the snap buttons at the back had been busted off. When it was new, though I had thought it was super cool, many thought it was a little obnoxious, but now you'd have a hard time finding anyone who would think it would be worth keeping around. But man, I love that hat. So I reformed the brim, got out my elastics, reformed that thing to the best of my ability, popped the bridge back out, washed it, babied it, and I wore it. And eventually, over time, it it began to fit closer to the way that it had fit before I lost it. It began to reshape itself to the form of my head. And then the threads from the crazy amount of stitching started coming out, and finally the plastic snap back broke altogether. And it could be, or it could do nothing but, but sit on a shelf until it was time to retire it for good. It's been a long time, but I still love that hat. In our sinfulness, we may wonder why God could have wanted us in the first place. And we may have convinced ourselves that because of the mess that we had made of things, there is no way that he could want us now. But he has put his image and his inscription upon you. He is so excited about you, regardless of the opinion that you hold of yourself or the opinion that, you might, that others might hold of you. He is a fan And when we run, when we disobey, when we try to hide from God, he is searching for us. He is seeking you diligently, turning over every leaf, cleaning out the van. And when he finds you, though your brim may be broken and there may be some damage that only eternity will be able to repair, he embraces you. He dusts you off. He washes you. He puts you back on his head, continuing to form you into who he desires you to be. Outside opinion does not influence God's affection for you. Your own opinion does not influence God's affection for you, for God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you, to pay for the sins that you could not, to pay for the times that you have forgotten whose image you bear. And for the times you have ignored what has been written on you, the word that has been put inside your heart. For all the times that we have neglected or ignored who God wants us to be, who he has made us to be, who he is excited about us being, for all the times that we have betrayed and hurt him, Jesus took the sin of every one of those moments and carried them to the cross. There he was cast out by God, forsaken by God because of our sin. And there he died, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And in so doing, he conquered sin and death. And so now when we repent, we receive the benefits of forgiveness. When we believe, we are clothed in righteousness of Christ. And we have relationship with God. When we rest in the faith that we have been given, we are brought into the family of God, and we are his We are his. He has put his image upon us. He has written his words upon us. We are his. I do not know who will win the election this week. 
I do not know who will claim the Oval Office for the next four years. I encourage each and every one of you who is of age and an American to cast your vote and participate in the election process. It is part of your civic duty as a citizen of this country. But as you vote, and as the results become known, and as we wrestle in the midst of these uncertain and divisive times, let us not forget whose we are. We do not belong to the blue team. We do not belong to the red team. Both sides are made up of flawed and imperfect people with flawed and imperfect agendas and priorities who will do the best that they can, which won't be nearly enough. Neither side is going to fix all of America's problems. And though we may individually support one side over the other, Jesus does not. Jesus had a person on either side of the question he asked in his own small he was asked in his own small group of friends. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the zealot. Political affiliation did not affect his love for a person, and it does not affect his mission or his purpose. For when Jesus is confronted with political conflict, he reminds the questioners and those hanging on every word of his response back then and through the centuries to now where our priorities should be and the true stakes of the game. He reminds us of whose we are. Let Caesar have his little coin. I want you, says Jesus. Could his mission and priorities be any clearer? Could his intentions, his feelings, his love and grace and compassion towards us be any more obvious? Could the mission that he is calling us to be any more urgent? As we wade through what will most likely be unrelenting political fallout, let us be reminded of the words of Jesus. Let us rest in the love and grace that he has poured out over us. Let us be reminded that we have been given God's image and we have been given his word. Let us be encouraged in the mission that he has called us to, the mission to proclaim God's love to all people and his work on their behalf that they might come into relationship with him. All of this as we rest in the remembrance of whose we are. We are his, created in his image, his word put upon us, bought and paid for by his blood. We are his. What a fantastic, wonderful, caring, gracious, and loving God we serve. Amen.